Anyone claiming that America's economy is in decline is peddling fiction. I've abandoned free market principles to save the free market system. But we have to pass the bill so that you can uh, find out what is in it. Raising the debt ceiling does not increase our debt. It does not somehow promote profligacy. I know words. I have the best words. Nobody knows the system better than me, which is why I alone can fix it. Hello, hello. How's it going, everybody? Welcome back to the Pedalic Fiction Podcast. And I am your host, the voice and soul, the purveyor of so-called fiction, Johnny Pofita. And what a difference a day makes. Last uh, podcast I did was on Saturday. It's now Monday night, and we got the South Carolina primary results in. And Joe Biden, Sleepy Joe, crushes it to the upside. He did exactly what I said he needed to do, which is just completely dominate the field the way Bernie Sanders did in Nevada. He got... 48% of the vote and 39 delegates, which puts him within striking distance of Bernie Sanders. Bernie Sanders got 15 delegates and about 20% of the vote. Everybody else was, was uh, Tom Steyer came in third, I think, and, and nobody else got any delegates. And on uh, Saturday, Steyer dropped out. And Sunday, Pete Buttigieg dropped out. And today, Amy Klobuchar dropped out. So we're going to talk about all of that since um, there's not a whole lot going on in the news other than the, the, the presidential primary stuff. It's just coronavirus this, coronavirus that, and I'm just so sick of hearing about it. I, uh, I mean, I, I still think this is being blown way out of control. You know, the, the media loves a story like this where there's a looming pandemic and you pull up a news site, the first 10 stories are all about the coronavirus, how many people have gotten it since yesterday, how many more countries it's in, how many people have died from this. It does scare you a little bit. I'm still just, I don't know, I, I, maybe I'm just crazy. I'm not too worried about it. I am younger, so you know, if I get it, I, I think my chances of surviving are pretty good. But the corporate press, their mission is accomplished. People are freaking out about this. There are lines up uh, outside of Costco's going around the block. People are stocking up on supplies as if the end of the world is coming. And, I mean, that's going to open itself up to a, a good episode on price gouging and, and things like that that we always get into during these types of crises. But, man, could you imagine spending four hours in a line just to get into Costco. I mean, I don't even go to Costco now because just on a regular day at places a zoo. I hate lines. I have a no line policy as best as I can. I try to avoid them whenever possible. And Costco, for whatever reason, that place, it doesn't matter what time of day you go. I'll go at two o'clock in the afternoon on a Wednesday and it's packed. I, I can't figure it out. There's not a moment of the day when it's not just lines everywhere. Lines for gas, lines to get in, lines to get the roasted chicken, lines to check out, lines to get out the door, lines for the hot dog. Man, I can only imagine what it's like now with all these people going berserk over this coronavirus. I think I'd, I'd rather just take my chances of dying. There's there's no way the coronavirus is worse than a Costco uh, uh, during hoarding season. But the one thing I am concerned about at this point is my trip to Italy. I think I've talked about it on the show before, the Profita luck. And if it weren't for bad luck, I wouldn't have any luck at all. Well, I finally convinced my parents to go on a three-week trip to Italy and they haven't been out of the country in a while. They haven't been to Italy since like the 70s. Um, 
And so I, I planned this whole trip. I've got everything booked, everything taken care of, all the accommodations, the flights, everything. And now all of a sudden, northern Italy, which is farther north than we're planning on going. We're not going any farther north than Florence. And at this point, it's still up and around Milan uh, in the Lombardy region, from what I understand. But uh, Italy's in shambles now because of the coronavirus. And I, I just can't catch a break. It's like it wasn't meant to be. So I don't. I still don't know what we're going to do about this. I'm going to wait and see. They still have a few months to sort of figure this out. But um, if the history of my luck is any indication, it's not looking good for the summer vacay. And I don't even know how you go about undoing all the plans that I've made. It, it's depressing and demoralizing just to think about it. So I'm not going to, <laughs> at least for another month or so. Hopefully this is just going to blow over like all these other viruses have. But if you ever needed a reason to think that this time it's going to be different and this is the virus that's going to destroy the, the, the entire planet, it would be because I have a vacation that's going to one of the countries that's currently experiencing an outbreak. That, that, that almost guarantees that this thing goes on at least through June just to screw me out of a vacation. And I never take a vacation in the summer. I always stay in Chicago because it's the only time in Chicago that's remotely pleasant. Summer in Chicago is fantastic. It's the other nine months out of the year that suck. Absolutely suck. Just cold, wet, miserable, depressing. The summer's fantastic. This summer, I'm making an exception because it's the only time my mom can go to Italy. So... I planned a vacation, <laughs> and here we go. Uh, coronavirus vacation, all right. Um, but worse than the, the actual virus seems to be the reaction to it. Uh, the, the supply chains getting shut down, the entire towns being quarantined out of fear that this is going to spread, and China factories shutting down. All, everything's grinding to a halt because the, the media has blown this thing way out of proportion and scared the bejesus out of everybody. Uh, the markets, uh, you know, I started at the top of the show, what a difference a day makes. The markets bounced back in a big way today. The Dow was up over 1,200 points, I think. And um, it, it was up across the board. Everything was up a little bit. Even gold bounced back from a big, a big drop that it had. It fell below 1600 after getting to almost 1700 last week. And now it's back up around 1600 I think. The Dow, if you remember, if you want to pull up your trading view, because I've been going over this chart every couple of episodes with you guys, and if you haven't been following along, now is not a bad time to do it. We could pull the chart up together. So, yeah, the, the Dow closed up 1,294 points today, up 5% in a day. That's got to be close to a record if it's not a record for a one-day gain. Um, and we're right up against a key structural uh, resistance level. Remember how I talked about the, the peak of the hill is support once you get above it, and once you fall below it, it becomes resistance? Well, there is resistance right where we closed today at 26,685. Now, if you look at the chart, you will see two peaks above that around the 27,300 level. That is the next key resistance to break through. So if it can break through above 27,000 and hold above those two peaks there, we, we might have some structural support to sort of hold up this market. Now, if tomorrow, the market does not open above 26.7 where it closed today and it opens lower or it can't close above this, this 26.700 level that it's at right now. If it can't hold where it's at and it goes down again, and I'm looking at a daily chart here. Uh, on a weekly chart, um, pull that up. The levels are about the same. It's right, the, the main structural support on a weekly chart is right at 26,677, uh, which is right where about where we're at right now. So if it can't get above that, um, look out below, because there is not a whole lot of support below there from uh, about 25,000 where we closed uh, last week on Friday 
and like 18,000. There's nothing but air there. So um, we'll, we'll see what happens to these markets. It's, I, you know, I think some of this rebound might have to do with some of the Joe Biden news coming out and maybe the markets are getting a little excited about the prospect that maybe Bernie Sanders has some competition. I'll get into that later. <laughs> the ironic thing about the markets is that the lower the markets go, the less uh, chance Donald Trump has of getting reelected, right? And the stronger the chance for Bernie Sanders to get elected is. And the stronger, you know, the more it looks like Bernie Sanders is going to win, the lower the markets will tend to go because the markets hate Bernie Sanders. So it almost becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy where it's Bernie Sanders gains momentum, the markets tank, that boosts Bernie Sanders' chances of winning and Donald Trump's chances of losing, and the markets tank even lower, and then a Bernie Sanders' presidency looks even more and more likely. So I don't know how much of today's rebound is due to that dynamic of Joe Biden winning South Carolina and how much is due to the you know all these central banks coming in and saying that they're going to cut rates and prop up the, the markets a little bit. So it, it could be a combination of the two. The next couple of days will be pretty interesting in the markets because the economic news coming out are, is all bad. The, the, the manufacturing numbers coming out um, today, global manufacturing PMI crashes to the weakest level since 2009, uh, U.S. manufacturing growth slows as new orders slump, new orders and imports are both down, uh, most likely because of the you know coronavirus stuff, but so uh, the actual economic news has not been positive. That doesn't justify a thousand point rebound. It looks like the markets are getting excited for some more federal monetary stimulus getting pumped into the markets. And we'll see if that stimulus is going to be the dose that actually kills us or just perpetuates uh, the, these phony markets that we've been living in for the last 10 years. Anyway, that's enough about that. Let's talk about politics. We don't do enough of that on the show, do we? Because I, I, I have some more thoughts on this whole democratic primary the whole the dynamics of it now that that people are dropping out and now that biden performed in south carolina because i was surprised to hear i mean i wasn't surprised that tom steyer dropped out because that guy just was a buffoon i have no idea what he was doing in the race in the first place but to drop out right before super tuesday doesn't make any sense right if you're actually a candidate that's trying to win the presidency and to have um Mayor Pete drop out on Sunday and then Klobuchar drop out today. The date, like, why would you stay in the race? And I was thinking back to all these candidates, you know, Beto O'Rourke, Cory Booker, Kamala Harris. That all seems like years ago when they were running and we were making fun of them. Uh, why would you hang in this long, get within 24 hours of Super Tuesday and then drop out? Right? Doesn't make any sense. So it's pretty clear. It, it should be obvious to everybody that the DNC has gotten to these guys and they have forced them in, in whatever way that they do. I don't know how they go about doing this, but they have gotten they have made the case that they need to drop out so that they stop stealing votes away from Joe Biden. Now that Joe Biden has made this push in South Carolina and it looks like he has momentum. Well, they don't want Mayor Pete, they don't want Amy Klobuchar and Tom Steyer to be stealing votes from him, and that's why they're leaving Elizabeth Warren in, because the, the perception is that her votes, she's taking them from a Bernie Sanders. Amy Klobuchar, Mayor Pete, their votes would, would go to uh, Joe Biden. They're, they're going to endorse them if, him if they haven't already. So it seems to be pretty clear that what the DNC was going to do was wait until South Carolina, see who won that, and have everybody else rally around that person to try to take down Bernie Sanders. If Joe Biden did as bad in South Carolina as he did in the first three primary uh, states, you would have seen them either rally around Mayor Pete or Amy Klobuchar or something like that and force a Joe Biden to drop out. Uh, but since he actually surprised to the upside, I mean, he really did well there. 
forty uh, percent of the vote. So it made the decision pretty easy for them, I think, and it made making the case pretty easy for a Mayor Pete and an Amy Klobuchar to drop out, so that Biden can garner their support and hopefully at least get this to a contested convention, and then we'll try to take that from Bernie once <laughs> once we get to that point. And it just, man, it just really goes to show you that you don't really have a say in who your candidate will be, do you? All of this talk, and you know, I'm no fan of democracy. That should not be um, any secret by now if you've been listening to this show. But just they, they talk so much about democracy and how sacred it is, and they like to give you this illusion of choice. But what are your choices, really? I mean, all of these politicians are essentially the same. Amy Klobuchar, Kamala Harris, Cory Booker, Beto O'Rourke, Joe Biden, Mayor Pete. There's no difference between these people in terms of the way that they would govern, in terms of how they're viewed by the establishment. They're all going to play ball. They're all easily controlled. They all believe in, in falling in line with the party. There's no difference there. It basically comes down to personality traits and, and popularity. It's a popularity contest at that point, right? And the reason, and they did the same thing with the, and the RNC, the Republican side. You know, they had, uh, who was running against Donald Trump? You had, uh, you had Jeb Bush, Rick Santorum, uh, who was that fat guy from Jersey? Chris Christie. You know, all of these guys are the same. There's no difference. They're, they're cookie-cutter versions of a politician. They're like cardboard cutouts. They're all interchangeable. It doesn't matter who, it, who you like. As long as you like one of them, they, they can swap those guys out interchangeably, and there's no difference in terms of the president at that point as far as the state is concerned. The reason the DNC and the RNC and the establishment, the reason they like these sorts of candidates is because they can make it seem like you have all these choices in front of you. You can choose between 10 different Democrats or 26 different Democrats. How many did we start out with? You had 20-something choices, okay? You had 20 on the Republican side against Trump as well. So it makes it look like you have this wide variety of, of people to choose from. When in reality, they're all the same. It's six of one, half a dozen of another. They're all exactly the same. <laughs> I mean, it, there's literally no difference. And the, the more narrower the field gets, the, more, the less those differences become apparent. Like there is no diversity now in the Democratic running, uh, primary running. They're all the same. It's like choosing between uh, regular potato chips and the ones with ruffles, right? And as long as they can convince you of the illusion of choice, and as long as they can get you to grab either a bag of the regular potato chips or a bag of the uh, ruffle potato chips or even the, uh, what, the kettle baked, th those are fine too. But the second you try and go off the reservation and say maybe you go for a, a, to grab a bag of Funyuns, well then then they will do everything in their power, everything in their power to make sure that those Funyuns are not available for purchase. And you're stuck with either regular old potato chips or extra crispy or whatever. But as long as you stick to the potato chips, you're fine. You go off the reservation, look out. And the case in point is just everything that's going on with Bernie right now. It should be so obvious if you've seen the way he's been treated in the corporate press, the mainstream media, the establishment's reaction to, to him being the front runner up to this point. You see, the problem was that Bernie wasn't able to dominate these, these primaries the way Donald Trump was able to dominate. He's essentially given the DNC the opening that they needed. Bernie needed to run the table big league with all these first few primaries so that they wouldn't even dream of stealing the election from him. It, you know, if Trump had made it as close as it is with Bernie and uh, Biden right now, uh, the Republicans might have been able to try to steal that nomination from Trump. And there was a lot of talk of doing that at the time. But since it's closer with Bernie, they're going to have a chance to get this to a contested convention 
and, and then they can manipulate the rules and, and take it, take the nomination away from him there. And if they can't, if all else fails, well, then they've already planted this seed uh, of Russian interference. Remember, that was last week. The Russians were interfering to get Bernie elected. And they can always fall back on another deep state coup, the same sort of thing that they did uh, with Donald Trump, where they'll effectively neuter your presidency. And, and they'll take away whatever you were trying to do. They will create a narrative that will make it impossible for you to do it. You see, they don't have to outright steal the election from Bernie Sanders anymore. Sure, that's plan A. But plan B is to just create this narrative and have your lapdogs in the corporate press help propagandize people so that nothing a Bernie Sanders presidency wants to get done will ever be feasible. Remember what they did to Donald Trump. Because if you remember, he was out there talking about how we need to negotiate with Russia. We should team up with them to fight ISIS. We should talk to Russia. And what happened? Well, for three years, at 24 hours a day, we had news cycles talking about how Trump was a Russian asset, how he's a puppet of Vladimir Putin. He's a traitor. He's committing treason. Every time he, he hinted at the idea of negotiating with Russia, of talking with Russia, th this stuff would come out and you'd be bombarded with it. And in doing so, they made it impossible for Donald Trump to do anything on that front. Anything. He couldn't do anything. Otherwise, he would just be proving their point. So they'll do the same thing with Bernie Sanders, should he actually win this nomination and then get elected. Um, and in the meantime, they are most certainly doing everything in their power to prevent that nomination from going forward. And I still think this is a big mistake, especially using Biden as the competition. Yeah, he crushed it in South Carolina, but he tanked horribly. In the three primaries before that, fourth place, fifth place. Yeah, he took second in Nevada, but it was like so such a distant second. It was like coming in fourth place. And he's not doing well in most of the polls right now compared to Bernie. Uh, South Carolina, I think, will be the exception that proves the rule, that, that Joe Biden has no support. He's a train wreck. He's an absolute train wreck. I've been saying this all along, but I am glad I'm glad that they decided to choose him, that the DNC has backed him because he's hilarious. It, he's, he's one gaffe after another, and I can't get enough of it. He's sniffing kids. He's making out with his granddaughter. He's got kids playing with his hairy legs. His dentures are falling out of his head during a debate. His eye basically, like, exploded. <laughs> I mean, they got poor kids are just as capable as white kids. He's losing his memory, his train of thought. He can't keep a sentence together. I really think he has Alzheimer's at this point. And um, I just can't wait. I can't wait for the corporate press to have to pretend that there's nothing wrong with Biden, to have to pretend like there's nothing wrong with him, that he's this great candidate. And um, it's just going to be hilarious to me. But I just, I really think the right move for them politically for the DNC is to let Bernie take this nomination. And the more I think about it, I mean, just let him have it. You let him have it. And then you get to run with the, you know, we let democracy prevail. The sacred thing of democracy, the people have spoken and we let this go through. So there's no longer this conspiracy that the DNC is going to steal this from Bernie. And then if he gets the nomination, he either loses to Donald Trump, in which case uh, the pending economic collapse that I've always been talking about on this show that I think is right around the corner. I don't think there is a chance that the next president gets out alive without the, the, the House of Cards coming tumbling down. But the economic collapse gets to be blamed on Donald Trump. They get to blame it on capitalism and deregulation and Republicans cutting the, I don't know, the EPA budget and all that crap, right? So they get their talking points out there and everything lines up for them. They get to blame everything that the Republicans have been doing, even though they've basically been governing like Democrats this entire time. And they get to point to that as the reason why you need to vote for a Democrat the next time, right? 
and then they can go to the Bernie bros and say, see, you know, we tried it your way. We tried putting a socialist up there against Donald Trump, and he couldn't win. And because he couldn't win, we got four more years of Trump. And Donald Trump tanked the economy with all his bullshit. So we can't, we can't afford to do this ever again. We can't afford to put a Bernie Sanders up there because he's unelectable. And, and the, the, the stakes are just too high, right? These are the things that they'll be saying. So the other scenario is that Bernie actually beats Donald Trump. Okay. So then the exact same economic collapse falls in Bernie's lap. The markets crash because they hate Bernie. They'll probably spearhead the whole recession. The markets hate Bernie. The, the, the stock market crashes. The same economic, economic collapse takes place. And they get to blame it on Bernie being too socialist. They'll lose the House and the Senate most likely in record numbers because, I mean, that almost always happens anyways after you have a changing of the guard at presidency. But now it's like Bernie Sanders, so the Republicans will be all riled up. They'll take back the, uh, the House. They'll gain in the Senate. And then they can make the case for why we need to go with Joe Biden from here on out. Because, you know, you can't have a, a functioning market with a socialist president. And look, at we put Bernie in, and the, the, the economy tanked, and now we lost the House, and now we lost the Senate, and this set us back decades, all that stuff, right? So I just, I really think they need to bite the bullet here, sacrifice the next four years of the presidency. And believe me, the next four years for, for the president, they aren't going to be good no matter who's at, at the helm here. I mean, it, it's not going to matter who's in charge. The next four years are going to be very painful from an economic perspective, from a, just a, a social, uh, cultural perspective. I don't see any light on the horizon right now. So give up on the next four years as president and, and focus on the long-term health of the Democratic Party. But if they go the other route, the route that they're, they're leaning toward right now, and they steal it from burden. Uh, from <laughs> Burden, <laughs> and they steal it from Bernie, and Biden wins. You know, the same economic collapse will happen. They'll still lose the House and the Senate. So they'll essentially get the exact same outcome, except that now they've alienated their entire young base of voters. And, and people may finally start to realize that this whole thing is a sham, that this whole system is bullshit, and maybe they lose faith in this bullshit system. And if they steal it from Bernie and, God forbid, Trump wins again, that's the fourth scenario, right? Then obviously, I mean, look, look at what they did. Bernie could have won. You did this to him in 2016 and you got us Hillary and that got us Trump. And now you stole it from him again and Trump won again. And this wouldn't have happened if you just nominated, let not Bernie get the nomination, but no, 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 you had to undermine our democracy, you had to steal it from Bernie Sanders, and now we have four more years of literally Hitler, right? So I, I just think from a, a long-term perspective, and I mean, if the DNC wants any free advice from me, not that I want the DNC to prevail or anything like that, but it, it just seems to me it makes the most sense from their perspective to, to let Bernie take this nomination and let the chips fall where they lie. Either way, there's a pretty strong narrative that they can roll with that people will believe. Unfortunately, people will believe it. And it would set them up nicely for the next 8 to 12 years or whatever. And, you know, there is a, there is a case to be made that a Bernie Sanders presidency wouldn't be all that bad from a Republican standpoint as well. Like I said, the uh, if the economic collapse happens on Bernie's watch instead of Donald Trump's, well, you can at least point to socialism a as the reason for it, even though it won't technically be Bernie's fault, but it will be all of the the socialism that's that we've been in enduring leading up to this point. The other added benefit you have to having a, a Democrat in office is that Republicans would start acting like Republicans again. They might start caring about spending and deficits. Remember when uh, Barack Obama was in there? It was all they could talk about, how, how these trillion-dollar deficits were uh, uh, un-American and we can't raise the debt ceiling. They'd shut down the government over this stuff. 
But now with the Republican in there, they just turn a blind eye. So you get you get the added benefit of Republicans becoming Republicans again. You'd probably get less government. Iron, this is what's ironic about it. If Bernie Sanders was president, you would probably get a, a lesser expansion of government than you would with a Republican with Donald Trump in office. And the reason I say that is because the Republicans would actually throw up roadblocks to Bernie Sanders when they're just letting uh, Donald Trump run wild with trillion-dollar deficits. And Bernie Sanders wouldn't be able to get any of his agenda through. All this stuff that he's talking about, forget about it. Uh, you need the Congress's approval to do it. I mean, I suppose he could do some executive orders, and, and God only knows what kind of executive orders Bernie Sanders would come up with. But you'd have a lot of resistance from Republicans to put a stop to that and maybe even try to impeach him over it. Um, and if, you know, if he loses the House and the Senate, he won't be able to get any of this stuff through. The Medicare for all, the free college, you know, the free college thing he might be able to do on an executive order. I'm not sure. Just wiping out the student loan debt. I'd have to look into that a little more. But for the most part, I, I think you might get less government with a Bernie Sanders than you would with a Donald Trump. And that is unbelievable. That is an unbelievable thing to me. So if you're a Republican... And you're tired of seeing Republican hypocrites turn a blind eye to record deficits, out-of-control spending, red flag laws, and gun control legislation. Just get Bernie in there, and magically, all those spineless Republican politicians, their backbone will just magically reemerge. Um, anyway, I, I don't necessarily agree, agree with that case. Um, <laughs> I happen to think that one of the most important things about the presidency is the bully pulpit. And I, I don't want four years of Bernie Sanders just being up there pushing this uh, socialist agenda, pushing this socialist narrative and brainwashing people in, into thinking that this is a good idea. So to me, I'd much rather have a, a the president is not supposed to be have any power anyways. He's really only supposed to be the commander-in-chief of the armed forces, and that's about it. The rest of it is, are simply speeches. He, he just talks a lot, and he gets to talk to everybody all the time. So I would much rather have a president that can get up there and talk about the virtues of individualism and liberty and, and free markets than I would some socialist uh, who's going to praise the, the second coming of the Soviet Union. Um, now, unfortunately... Congress has relinquished a lot of its power over the years to the president. But yeah, for me, I, I'd much rather have a president up there who can, can speak to the values of libertarianism. But I realize that, of course, that is a pipe dream this day and age. Um, anyway, I still don't think even with everyone dropping out that, that Joe Biden can legitimately win this thing. Um, I, I Like I said, he's just a train wreck. But really, I think a lot of people are relying on this old dynamic. And you hear people talk about this all the time. The idea that, well, you know, Bernie Sanders can't win because young people don't vote. Old people vote. Old people like Joe Biden. Old people like the establishment. Young people like Bernie. But young people don't show up at the polls. So... That's why Bernie can't win, right? And I really think that this election year might be the year where that dynamic completely changes. Because if you think about why that dynamic existed in the first place, in an election, who has more at stake, at least historically, up until this point? Who had more to lose in an election? Was it young people 18 to 25 who were either still at home living with their parents or off in college who have never had a job don't pay any taxes have no idea what it's like in the real world are decades away from collecting social security or medicare or is it the old people who are completely reliant now thanks to social security on government programs to get them through their golden years, who are completely reliant on the government for, for health care, 
who have a, a, an enormous tax burden if you're if you're older and wealthier. I mean, who has more at stake? It's the old people. That's why the old people always vote. They're either on Social Security, and th and that's their main driving factor, or they're they're wealthier because they've been in the workforce for thirty years, and they don't want their taxes going up. So don't cut my Social Security, don't raise my taxes. I'm going to go out to vote. Young people, it's like, yeah, it'd be nice if this guy won. He's inspiring or whatever, but their livelihood's not dependent on it. Uh, they don't really have anything at stake. Well, what's happened to that dynamic now? What has happened? What has the government done to the youth in America over the last uh, 10, 15 years that's finally culminating in something where now maybe young people have something to lose in an election. Student loan debt. Student loan debt. The outstanding student loan debt is now over $1.6 trillion. That is an astronomical amount of money. And there is no way it's ever getting paid back. Ever. And I've talked about this before on the show. With the mortgage debt. Mortgage debt is over $16 trillion. Okay, which is another uh, enormous amount of debt that wouldn't exist if the government hadn't artificially suppressed interest rates and, and made it more affordable for you to go into debt to buy stuff. You see, that's what the government does. Every time they talk about making something affordable, they don't mean making the price cheaper, making it easier for you to buy. What they mean is they're going to make it easier for you to go into debt to afford it to take on more debt. And that's what they did with the housing crisis. That's what they've done with the student loan debt. And in making the student loan debt 1.6 trillion, they've taken a, a problem that never existed before. College used to be affordable. You hear stories. Talk to your 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 parents or your grandparents if depending on how old they are. They would talk about working a summer job to pay for their tuition. Even like a tuition like Yale was not, uh, it was not unheard of to just wait tables in the summer to pay your tuition. You can't do that anymore. You can't do that anymore. It costs uh, hundreds of thousands of dollars a year now to go to some of these schools. So you take on the debt. They convince, they propagandize students. You spend your entire life hearing nothing but propaganda around how great college is, how if you don't go to college, you'll never succeed in America. You have to go. You Don't worry about how much money it costs. Just borrow whatever because you need that degree. It's the, it's the ticket to the middle class. It's the ticket to prosperity. You, you, there's no dignified work that doesn't come with a college degree and all this nonsense, all this propaganda around it. And then they loan the money to you. See, it used to be banks. It used to be banks, but banks didn't want to loan tens of thousands of dollars to some 18-year-old kid to go sit in a library and read for four years and come out with a sociology degree. So then the government had to guarantee the loan. It said, you know, oh, hey, bank, don't worry. If the student gets some bullshit decree and can't pay it back because they can't get a job, they don't have any marketable skills, don't worry. The government will guarantee that loan. So the bank said, sure, I'll, I'll loan it out. Uh, then, uh, you know, the interest rates were too high. Okay, and so now the government says, oh, those greedy banks, uh, we'll, we'll take this profit motive out of it, and we'll just loan. The government will loan directly to the students. And lo and behold... Um, not only did the interest rates, uh, interest rates might have gone down a little bit, but the price skyrocketed because there's no mechanism stopping controlling the prices. It, the, the government will always give you money to go into debt because it's not their money. They didn't have to work for it. They just print it or they just steal it in the form of taxation. They don't care how much it costs. They don't care how much money gets spent. And as long as the schools know that the, the students have an unlimited supply of capital to bid up the, the price of tuition, well, they'll just keep raising the cost of tuition. And we've seen the cost of tuition skyrocket to the point where there's now $1.6 trillion worth of student loan debt. And that debt is not like the housing debt where you actually have an asset, where you have a house at least. 
with your mortgage payment that the bank can take back if you don't make your payments. What do we have here? What's this $1.6 trillion? It's nothing. You have a worthless piece of paper, a sociology degree, a gender studies degree. Okay, so there's nothing there. There's no asset there. We squandered $1.6 trillion. And now that these students can't pay back any of this debt, um, this debt that was 100% government's fault, 100% government is 100% behind this entire student debt crisis. It is 100% government made. Now, they will blame greedy capitalism and, and whatever for, for this issue, but it is 100% at the feet of the federal government. And now what are they going to do? Now that they've crippled you, now that they've broken your legs as a student or as a graduate, you've got all this debt that you can't pay back, and you don't have a job because you got a worthless degree that they told you you had to get, now that they've broken your legs, what are they going to do? Now they're going to hand you a crutch. They're going to say, hey, you know, all that student loan debt, you vote for me, and I'll take care of it. We'll wipe the slate clean on that. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is how they create an entire generation of dependents. They have them hooked. Anybody with forty, fifty, sixty thousand dollars worth of student loan debt, they're hooked. Who's gonna say no to that deal? Who's gonna say no to a politician that's gonna promise to give them fifty thousand dollars? Sixty thousand dollars, a hundred thousand dollars, and wait until Bernie Sanders does get elected. Could you imagine how many more students are just gonna borrow a shit ton of money? I'd take out a five hundred thousand dollar loan if I could. Why not? Government's going to make it free. This is what they do. They break your legs, hand you that crutch, and then they get you dependent on that crutch forever. As long as you keep voting for them, they'll keep wiping out the debts that they saddle you with. So I do think that this entire dynamic of young people not voting is going to change because they are highly motivated now. They have 1.6 trillion reasons to vote this November. And that those reasons were not there just a few years ago. Th this problem has skyrocketed since 2009. Um, and that's when Barack Obama came in and said that the federal government was going to loan directly to students. They were going to cut out the middleman and really solve this problem. Yeah, look at a chart of the outstanding student loan debt and see you can pinpoint the exact moment where Barack Obama decided to have the government loan directly to students. But anyway, the way that they've gotten the, the youth to be dependent on government is to saddle them with student loan debt. Initially, that they tried to get the youth vote uh, during Vietnam. That, that was when they lowered it to 18. They said, well, if they're young enough to go off and fight and die in Vietnam, they should at least be able to vote. So, so we go to war, and we can uh, leverage that to get the youth vote. And when that's you know not enough of a motivation anymore because we don't have a draft, it's an all-volunteer army. Well, we need some other motivating factor to get these young people to vote. Because we want the young people to vote because they're too stupid and too naive to know what's good for them. To know that I'm selling them snake oil. But I can convince them to vote for me as long as they have a motivating factor. Well, now they've found it. Student loan debt. We, and it's 100% government's fault. The government tricks them into taking on trillions of dollars worth of debt. And then in exchange for their vote, they offer to wipe the slate clean. And it's, of course, it's not like the government has any money of their own. That's going to come at the expense of all the other taxpayers and even these students themselves who are too stupid to realize it. Obviously, who, who's going to pay this off? Who, who's going to pay off that debt? It's going to be taxpayers. And in theory, all of these students, once they graduate, will at some point become taxpayers. Your taxes will either go up to pay for this nonsense or they will print the money, create it out of thin air, and you will have inflation as far as the eye can see. And that is a tax, that is a hidden tax, that hurts the poorest among us.
So I think Biden's going to have a very hard time competing with Bernie Sanders in a, in a legitimate uh, nomination process. You know, I don't think that dynamic's going to hold. I think young people are going to turn out in droves. And I also think that Biden's message is just not compelling. Not at all. He doesn't have a purpose. Why is he running? Why is Joe Biden running? Other than the fact that I think I can beat Trump or I'm the guy to beat Trump. Uh, uh, okay. Uh, does he have a reason other than that? I mean, his first ad was about restoring the soul of America or some stupid shit like that. But his platform is basically, you know, I, I want everything that Bernie wants. I just want 15% less of it. 15% less of everything that Bernie wants. That's the sweet spot there. Uh, oh, okay, but if 85% is good, wouldn't 100% be better? I mean, why not a Medicare for all? Why not forgive all the student loan debt? What's wrong? Why, if 85% of that is good, why not just take it to its logical conclusion? And that's Bernie Sanders. Bernie has a purpose. He's the revolution. The people, the workers, he wants to fight for the little guy and take down the corporations and give you free health care and free college and free housing and everything that you like, everything that you want in life. Well, that's a human right, a human right, and the government will provide it for you. They'll guarantee it. They'll guarantee that everything you want in life, that's a right now. It's a right, and you deserve it, and, and you get it if you vote for Bernie Sanders. Now, don't get me wrong. I, I think Bernie is not only a terrible candidate, but as I've made clear on this show, a terrible human being, and he's very vulnerable. It's just that Biden is so much worse, so much worse. I mean, Bernie, in the last debate, when people would actually went after him a little bit, he has no answers for any of the major criticisms or attacks against him. He can't defend spending $30 trillion or $50 trillion on Medicare for all. He can't defend the fact that he's been praising authoritarian, murderous dictators his whole life, that he went to the Soviet Union right before it collapsed, literally right before it, it collapsed, and came back and, and was singing its praises, thinking they had everything figured out, this glorious civilization. This is the way to organize society. And then, well. It, it collapsed. Okay. Bread lines are a good thing. Oh, they had literacy programs. I, I mean, obviously. Obviously, they had literacy programs. If you're an authoritarian government and your ability to stay in power is predicated upon the fact that your subjects are able to read and understand all of the propaganda you're feeding them, of course, of course you're going to want to make sure that they all can read. But what are they allowed to read, Bernie? What are, you, what are they allowed to read over in Cuba? You think that they went to school and they got to read Rothbard and Ludwig von Mises and Hayek and Bombavrik? Of course not. Of course not. They only got to read what the government allowed them to read. They didn't have freedom of the press. They didn't have freedom of speech. If you spoke out against the government, you were locked in a cage. Best case scenario. Everything you read was coming from the state, had a state's stamp of approval on it. It was pure propaganda designed to get you to accept your fate as subjects of the government. So of course, yes, they had literacy programs, you fucking idiot. And of course, for a short period of time, right after the government seizes all the means of production and steals all the wealth that's being created. Yes, of course, in the immediate aftermath of that, while you're squandering all that wealth and distributing it all throughout society, you can point to things that the government is doing that appear to be good. You would think if you confiscate everything from society, you should at least be able to provide something something, anything in exchange for everything being stolen from everybody else, at least for a short period of time. But then what? Then what happens? What happens when it's all gone? What happens when they've squandered everything? 
when all the rich people leave, when all the people that were producing and creating the wealth stop. Then what, Bernie? Well, then, of course, you get places like Venezuela, where people are starving, there's no food, they have to wait in lines for hours just to try to get basic necessities like eggs and flour. You eat the zoo animals, you ravage through garbage, your daughters are forced into prostitution, your currency becomes so worthless, you're better off using it as toilet paper than using it to try to buy toilet paper at the grocery store. And then, of course, comes the inevitable, infamous line, well, that wasn't real socialism. And he'll point to some other country that's still in the early phases of squandering all the wealth that capitalism has created, and will do it all over again. So he's a very weak candidate. It is very easy to attack him. But Joe Biden is not the man to do it. I don't even think Donald Trump can really make a good argument against him either. But you have to at least make an argument. They're not make, nobody's making arguments against socialism anymore. They think that you can just say socialism and that everyone's going to think it's bad. You have to be able to articulate why it's bad. What are the problems with it? And, and Joe Biden can't articulate anything at this point. He's lucky if he can remember his own name. But Bernie is a very weak candidate. I still think he has the best chance of beating Trump. Um, and I think the DNC is making a big mistake by trying to steal the nomination from him. And we'll see what happens. We got Super Tuesday tomorrow. So we'll, we'll, uh, we'll have a much better picture of where this is going to end up. And um, I guess we'll go from there. Guys, if you like the show today, do me a favor and download and subscribe and share the show with a couple of your friends. I know you know somebody out there that would enjoy this show just as much as you do. So don't be so selfish as to keep me all to yourself. Go ahead and share it with a couple of people. Give me a five-star rating and review on iTunes. Follow me on Twitter at Pedal Fiction. And if you want to become a supporting listener of the show, you can do that at PedalingFictionPodcast.com. And if you can do all that, I will be back later this week with a brand new episode. Until then, you know the drill. Keep on pedaling that so-called fiction. Peace.